Well, we are um, in the midst of a series of messages through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, and the series title is called Getting Right with God, which is Paul's primary concern, uh, particularly in this portion of this letter. And he's writing to a young church that he's never met, and so he's trying to cover some of the important components of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be the church, of what it means to have faith. And as he does that, he's, he has unrolled uh, sort of a, a beautiful articulation of, of the righteousness of God, and then he's sort of flipped that over and looked at some of the ugliness of humanity, and then he's talked about the relationship of faith and the law, and then he's sort of in chapter 8 coming to a conclusion of sorts uh, from this discussion of, of faith and the law, and he rolls the discussion into uh, this idea of the Spirit. And so this morning as we read, I want you to pay attention to that word. I want you to pay attention to what Paul is saying about the Spirit of God and, and see how all of the preceding seven chapters are sort of pointing to the place of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, as we read uh, the first 17 chapters of chapter 8, I'm sorry, excuse me, first 17 verses of chapter 8 in the book of Romans, uh, please read along with me and pay attention to that theme, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although... The body is dead because of sin. The spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not, I'm sorry. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm always amazed every time I get into an airplane and it actually takes off. Does that freak anybody else out? Right. I mean, it's it's just like, how does that work? Right? Um, there's this principle, they call it, these people who study these things. It was developed by, I guess he was Italian, his name was Bernelli, the Bernelli Principle. Are you familiar with this? I hope you are, because your life depended on it for an entire career, so... Um, But the Bernelli principle basically describes what we would call lift, the reason that an airplane is able to take off and fly and and then land gently, right? That's the understanding of the Bernelli principle that allows us to do that. Um, If you've ever wondered why pilots are control freaks. I'm sure none of you here have ever wondered why that's the case, right? But if you've ever wondered why, well, you want them to be because there are two laws at work in opposition to one another, if we can't really call Bernelli's principle a law, but we will for the sake of argument, right? There's gravity, that thing we're all so very familiar with, and then there's this Bernelli principle, this other law at work. And if you're going to escape the confines of gravity, we best understand this other principle, this principle that, that describes the concept of, of lift. And then we have to be able to control that because lift is not our only concern. Lift is great. But lift without that gentle landing is ugly, and we don't want that. And so we need to understand if we're going to be those who are in charge of flying or designing aircraft or what have you, the way these two laws work in relation to each other. Because one is, in a sense, the fundamental overcoming of the other. And, and one of them will overcome the other in every flight. And we want to make sure it's the right one, right? Well, Paul is saying that spirituality is, is much the same. That there's this, this law of the flesh, 
this law of sin and this law of death that all sort of work together to drag us down, to make us feel like garbage or to discourage or dismay or confuse or despair. But Paul says that's not the only law in play. That because of what Christ has done, there's another law at work in our hearts and in our lives. It's the law of the Spirit. And it's in some ways ironic, if you've been following Paul's uh, elaboration of this idea of the law, that he even calls the work of the Spirit a law. But I think his, his point is this, that there are two laws in tension with each other in our hearts. One that pulls us down and, and one that gives us lift. One that allows us to overcome the darkness, the fear, the anxiety, the realities of this fallen existence. So I want us to look at this idea of the spirit. This idea of that Paul sort of elaborates on in this passage that there is this other law at work in our lives and it's I love the way this chapter begins those of you who who know me very well would that would not surprise you right that Paul spends the previous what we call seven chapters of this letter defining and elaborating and clarifying and and reiterating these ideas of righteousness and sin and law and faith. And then when he gets close to the end of this uh, sort of theological elaboration, he stops and says, there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing statement. Um, And can we just all pause together for a moment and thank God for this? That we can live without condemnation. And you know, I don't know what playground these kids are on, but that wasn't anything like my playground when I was that age, right? Um, you know, what, what do the other kids say if you get hit in the face? Are you okay? No. <laughs> I don't ever remember that one. Um, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That this law of the Spirit of God that is at work within us means that we can live without condemnation. We can walk by the law of the Spirit, which means we can enjoy the freedom of Christ. Think about the massive shift 
that took place in Paul. When he grew up as a good Jewish boy, he followed all the rules, he went to school, he learned how to be a Jewish teacher uh, under, under the, the, the Harvard of his day in Jewish law. He, he joined the ranks of the Pharisees, the most well-respected and revered group of men in Israel. And that whole time, his premise for life and faith went, went sort of like this. I better figure out what the rules are and abide by them perfectly. And that's the quest. Perfect obedience to God. And of course, what's the risk when you, when you sort of lay your bet on perfect obedience? What's the risk? Failure. Right? And, and Paul, at this point, and spent, he has spent several chapters already talking about this, so I won't elaborate to a great extent. But he doesn't say failure is an option. He says failure is a guarantee. When you bank on perfect obedience to God, failure is a guarantee. None of us can live up. And so when Paul talks about freedom, what he means is is relief from the burden of perfect obedience, of failure being a guarantee. He says we no longer face the guarantee of failure before God. We face a fundamentally different reality. One where we can live without condemnation because we walk by the Spirit, by the law of the Spirit. We're, We're called to enjoy the freedom of Christ because we enjoy the fulfillment of Christ. And what Paul means by that is that Christ fulfilled perfectly the law on our behalf. So there was one who lived in perfect obedience to the law. His name was Jesus. And when he offered his life as a gift for us, we gain everything he earned. And so the pressure is off. And we are in a position of freedom and fulfillment in Christ. Interesting if you contrast some of these verses, or or just the word condemnation from verse 1, and where does it appear again, where sin is condemned in verse 3, is that? Did I get that right? 4? 3, thank you. I can count. Um, there's There's this reversal that, you know, sin used to be that which condemned us. And Paul says, we are no longer condemned because of what Christ has done. And because of what he has done, it's in fact sin that stands condemned. And we find ourselves, because of Christ, in a completely different orientation to God. We're to live without condemnation by walking in the law of the Spirit and by walking in the mind of God of the Spirit, where Paul tells us we find life and peace. Um, 
Did you hear his discussion of hostility? Did you see that? And, you know, there is a thread in human nature that is really good at hostility. The, the anger, the rebellion, the... What do you want to call that? And I think we all have our own little corner of that that we occupy, right? And Paul says that um, when we dwell there in our own flesh, we are in this position of animosity towards God, in rebellion, in um, hostility. And that through Christ, we find life and peace. Our, Our war with God is over. The weapons are laid down. And we are allowed to sit and look into the eyes of our Creator and see Him smile. Because there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we walk in that mind of the Spirit, we find life and peace, and we live for the first time in our lives in harmony with God, or at least with the potential for harmony with God. What does he say? Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So apart from Christ, what can we do to satisfy the righteousness of God. Nothing. Apart from Christ, nothing. And so, Paul says, this is the beginning of our understanding of this principle of the Spirit, this law of the Spirit, living by this new law, as opposed to the law of the flesh or of sin. And where the laws of the flesh and sin bring death, living by the law of the Spirit brings life. Because something has been done to us and for us that we could not do for ourselves. So we are to live without condemnation and we are to live with His presence. As Paul turns his attention in these next three verses, it's he's obsessed, really, with this idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that, that God literally takes up residence in our hearts. And again, let me, let me just give you the shift that Paul has gone through in his life, where as a good law-abiding Jew, where did the presence of God reside? Anyone? In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, on the seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so, between the 
the dwelling of the presence of God and mankind, there was a curtain and a stone building and a, a, another courtyard and another stone wall and then another courtyard and another stone wall. Uh, we did not have direct access to the presence of God. I, w- I, was, uh, I was surfing through the, the channels with my kids the other day um, we came across an interesting show, uh, Church Rescue. Have you seen this? It's, it's kind of interesting. It's just a reality show, but that's not important right now. Um, there was a, a piece, I don't know if it's on National Geographic or the History Channel or what it was on, but it was on uh, the Ark of the Covenant and these different theories of what gave it its power. And so there was one guy who was theorizing that because the two cherubim that sit on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and they're, they're uh, in gold leaf, uh, hammered gold leaf, and um, that this creates this electrical vortex, right? And, and that, that when that guy who was walking touched the Ark, he basically got the poo-poo shocked out of him, and he died, okay? Because this is, an, you know, and, and, they, and of course, it's not really repeatable. They can't explain why there would be an electrical vortex, but, you know, that was one theory. Another guy theorized that the, the stone tablets of Moses were radioactive, right? And so they had to be encased in this thing, and then there a wall and another wall, and to protect, no one could go in there. They might, even the guy that went in there once a year, they had to tie a rope around his waist in case he died while he was in there, right? And uh, the whole time, my kids are are just in disbelief, particularly Annie, if you know her. She's, she has trouble expressing herself, right? Um, and she says something to the effect like, those idiots, it's the presence of God, hello? And I have to say, I agree with her. And, and here's, the, here's the kicker. If, if I'm getting what Paul is saying, that power has taken up residence in each of our hearts. You, those around you, all of us collectively are the Ark of the Covenant. We are the repository of the presence of God on earth. That means we are indwelt by his presence and his power. And I think one of the things that Paul wants us to take away from this is that we need to live differently. We need to live out of this strength that comes from the presence of God dwelling within us. Okay. As with Paul, this life in his presence, or with his presence within us, allows us to find new perspective. That is, your flesh no longer defines you. Your Sins 
your tendencies, your thoughts, your actions, your inactions do not define who you are in Christ. You have been redefined. God's spirit dwells within you. You belong to your creator. This discovery of this presence of God within us allows us to find new perspective and find new strength. A well from which we can draw. Where we find that Christ gives us his righteousness. Verse 10, real quick. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness is Paul talking about? It's not mine. I can promise you that. It's not mine. It's the righteousness of Christ. And so, through what Christ has done, he has not only taken from us our sin, but he has sort of imposed upon us his righteousness. We have fundamentally changed as a result of what Christ has done for us. And we can draw strength from that, strength from the fact that Christ gives us his righteousness, and strength from the fact that the spirit that dwells within us gives us new life. If left to ourselves, our own personal cycles of despair will only lead us in a downward direction, the pull of gravity, if you will, on our souls. With the infusion and indwelling of the Spirit of God into our hearts, we are lifted, we are changed, we are transformed and given hope and new life. So we're to live without condemnation, we're to live with the presence of God, and we're to live as a child of God. Paul moves now into the discussion of our adoption as God's children, that we have been brought into his family. And he says essentially this, that being a child of God means coming into the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is away from the flesh and death that comes through sin and into the spirit and life. Um, we have a new voice over us. That we are not children of, of sin and darkness and despair. We've been adopted out of that reality and into the family of God. And so, because of that, we are to listen to the voice of the Spirit rather than the, the longings of our flesh. And to see the end that the Spirit brings, which is life. We're to come into the leading of the Spirit and we're to come into the adoption of the Father. I love the way this is expressed. If I can touch back on verses 14 and 15. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. 
but you have received the spirit of adoptions of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father if you don't already know this that word abba is from the the language that Jesus would have spoken at home and it's the word daddy it's the affectionate familiar on the living room floor name for dad and so Paul says we're not just sort of brought into the king's house and given a room we're brought into relationship with God to the extent that we we see him and know him and respond to him in that intimate and familiar of terms we are his children and we are to leave the chains of fear behind how much of your day is controlled by fear how much of your life is controlled by fear and it's amazing to me how insightful God is through his word. That, that these words are thousands of years old. And God saw right through us even then. And he says, just let it die. I've got this. You're my child. I, I've adopted you into my family, and I'm not going to mess this up. So just lay down the fears and come into my arms. We're to come into the adoption of the Father, to leave our chains of fear and enter his arms of love. This is foreign to us. And Paul knows this. Because he he came from a tradition where no one would have ever called God Daddy, Papa. Never would those words have been uttered. And Paul says everything's changed. And I now have the leading of the spirit that dwells within me, the adoption of the father that stands above all, and the inheritance of the son of God at my disposal. And very interesting, isn't it? That as Paul sort of winds through these thoughts and he hits this high note of adoption by the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of all. That he turns right there and says, yes, we're adopted into God's family, which means we share in his suffering and in his glory. Paul says that the Christian life is not a cakewalk 
And I'm sorry for those of you who are younger than me and have no, I, I figured that out the other day. These kids, people don't even know what that is. It's not a square dance. I don't know. Somebody give me something better. I don't know. Um, what's easy, Calvin? Pie? Is pie easy? Is it easy to eat pie? Well, 3.14 and after that, I'm lost. So I'm not sure how easy it is. No one's ever gotten to the end of it. It's a lot of pie. Okay. That we are called to share in his suffering. The book of Isaiah says he is a man familiar with sorrows. We are to be a people familiar with sorrows. And yet, it doesn't end there. It ends in the sharing of his glory. That yes, we will suffer with Christ, but ultimately he will raise us up. He will overcome the law of sin and death and raise us up with him to life and glory. And we will enjoy that forever. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word. That you pierce to the core of who we are and expose even the ugliness that is sometimes there. That we might find healing and peace and life through your love. Father, continue to shape us and grow us and redefine who we are and how we live that we might truly live as heirs of your glory, even as we share in your sufferings. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray.